Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that I broadcast on unceded sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation here at Triple R. I pay my respects to Elders past and present and I acknowledge the oral storytelling traditions that Wurundjeri people and other First Nations people have practised on this land since time immemorial. Oral storytelling is a means of knowledge sharing, of history, of language and of connection. I acknowledge all the First Nations poets and storytellers that have generously shared stories and truth about this country and I acknowledge that deep history of tradition in which we speak to you today. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. We do have a very special live in conversation lined up for today's show. So if you are keen to watch, you can head over to our website on rrr.org.au or via our Triple R social media. How Decent Folk Behave is a new poetry collection that traces the outline of the Black Lives Matter movement, of Me Too, of the Christchurch massacre, the bushfires, the pandemic, and they critique the pervasive structural inequalities that led to a lot of these moments of reckoning and how they can trickle into more intimate spaces of a doctor's office, a lover's arms, a home. These poems look towards a future held up by the next generation, a generation who skips school to march on the streets for the climate for a better tomorrow. These poems offer us a time capsule for the world that is and the world that may one day be. How Decent Folk Behave is the new poetry collection by award-winning author of short fiction, non-fiction, poetry, Maxine Beniba-Clark. Maxine, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, And I too would like to acknowledge, particularly when we're talking about storytelling, that I'm sitting on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and to acknowledge the storytellers who've come before me on this land. Mm, Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, Maxine, it's such an honour to speak with you. I've been following your work now for many years. Um, I remember reading your first poetry collection, uh, Carrying the World, um, you know, a few years back, which won the 2017 VPLA. Um, You know, you're an extremely accomplished writer. You've got 10 books published now, I believe, both for adults and for young people. I notice that you often call yourself a poet first. And when you write across form, I'm interested... I suppose poetry is a very particular craft. Is your impulse to write poetry distinct from your other forms of writing? No, I think for me when I go to write, you know, when I go to the page, I instantly gravitate towards poetry. It's usually the first thought that comes into my head. Even with my children's picture books, they're all actually poems. So in the same way that I was writing, even with my memoir, The Hate Race, you know, the way that I came to bring that together was with these kind of poetic refrain, um, trying to put poetry into a form that people will read. (laughs) 
I th- I feel like whenever I read your work, you can kind of always see that you are a poet first. There's this kind of musicality and tone and, and rhythm of your writing that really does, I think, po- kind of point to um, being a poet first. I, I am interested, I suppose, in, in your poetry, but, uh, you know, something that I would love to talk about as a jumping off point, you know, your book opens with a quote from Nina Simone, which says, an artist's duty, as far as I'm concerned, is to reflect the times. Um, and, you know, it's something that I feel like is kind of echoed throughout your book. In many ways, I think this these poems feel like um, a poetic diary. Can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, first and foremost, what role art has had um, and making art has had for you in the last couple of years during these times? I think, you know, art is always or has always been the way I process the world, you know, through words. And this book in particular, you know, I, I, I think that situation that we were all in of not being able to have those incidental chats with family, friends or colleagues or, or go to writers' festivals and about how they're feeling about the world and various things, you know, almost those conversations that I was down in our homes. Um, so, yeah, they were really to make some sense of all of these events that were happening around us. Mm. Yeah, you can kind of see that, I suppose, as a way of processing the world. You know, the last couple of years have been huge in many ways. There's, you know, you cover it a lot throughout these poems. I know that I think before you started writing these poems, you were writing for the Saturday paper and you were writing poetry that was uh, in response to the news. I'm interested, I suppose, if that experience shifted or changed the way that you respond to news as a poet, or if you feel like that was already part of your practice. I think I'm used to responding to world events. Um, It was very quick turnaround. So um, I would decide on a topic or sometimes get given a topic um, on a Tuesday and the paper would go to print on a Thursday evening. Um, So it was this real kind of pressure cooker way of thinking you're listening to Triple R. We are live in conversation with award-winning poet and author Maxine Beniba Clark. Uh, Maxine, I did want to ask you, you do have such a uh, prolific presence on Twitter and it's something that I love because it's it's a perfect way to kind of delve into the minds of some of my favourite poets like yourself. I'm interested, how do you see something like a tool like Twitter as a yeah, potentially a tool for your writing and and to kind of test out material on your audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know I like to keep it light on Twitter most of the time, um, and I think it's you know it's this strange thing where it feels like it would be the antithesis to poetry, but it's short form, so you're still trying to get across you know a lot of information sometimes in that really condensed language, um, and so yeah, I see it as a challenge, and you know even in the sense of Poetry is often hard to distribute. So um, that sense of, you know, if if I've written something that has an immediacy, the possibility of actually posting it on Twitter and sending it, you know, circulating it to a couple thousand people immediately really appeals to me as an author. Mm. I am interested in those kind of barriers or the ways in which we can kind of confine an art form. You know, obviously on Twitter there is a limited word count. I suppose I'm interested in that, knowing that this collection of poetry was written over the last couple of years. Did you find, I suppose, the kind of parameters or the barriers of having extended lockdowns have an impact on the way that you were thinking and the way that you were writing? 
Yeah, they definitely changed, I guess, the loose plans I had as a creator, as a writer for the last few years. I think I probably saw myself um, working on fiction over the last few years, kind of going back to either um, kind of novellas or um, else kind of maybe trying a novel. Uh, but because of the lockdown and having kids at home and homeschooling and all of those pressures, I ended up primarily working on poetry and also a, a kid's picture book. So I kind of, I guess, was in, in the position of having the luxury of going, okay, I will adjust the way that I work. If I'm working in shorter form or working on illustrations, that actually allows me to kind of dip in and out of work mm-hmm. Um as opposed to needing that long stretch that I think fiction for me requires to actually produce good work. Mm. I mean, I would love to, I suppose, now throw to one of your poems. It is called Generation Zoom. It feels very fitting today. And (laughs) the first time I heard it was when uh, you were, as I was saying before, off air, uh, you had there was a Red Room Poetry event at the Wheeler Centre and it was the night before we went into our last extended lockdown and it was beautiful and, yeah, just the words of it felt so fitting then and I, I imagine they are now. So, yeah, please take it away. Let's go. Generation Zoom. In the third week of the pandemic, schools started closing, workers were sent home and they started to call the youngsters Generation Zoom. Named, of course, for that chat app all of them seemed to use. Logging in for FaceTime, completing maths lessons online, dancing TikTok feeds on loop, clicking into Insta News and everyone was asking, what on earth will become of WhatsApp's children? Visiting friends through cracked iPhone glass and advised to stay away from their own mama's arms, who weren't allowed to warm to touch Cause don't you know, there's a virus going round and less is love, baby, less is love. Parented from 1.5 metres away. What hope the future when a whole generation grew up this way? Socially distant, quarantined and self-isolated. No giggly schoolgirl notes tucked into the pockets of square-checked tunics. Nor the exquisite stomach churns you used to get when someone you liked stood close to you. But Generation Zoom, they saw the neighbours from two doors down put a note in their letterbox asking if they still had food. Generation Zoom streamed bitter fights in supermarket aisles over toilet paper and baked beans, but they also saw us learn how to grow the world from seed. How the cities, silent, was so beautiful. How, for the first time in so long, Dad was home and he vacuumed and forgot to act like dinner was his due. And all the family were on the same time frame, in the same house, defrosting bolognese and bickering and bunking in. Elijah's boyfriend was finally allowed to phone even though mum was still confused about the whole gay thing. Because don't you know, there's a pandemic going on and love is love, ma. Love is love. In the end, we'll be okay because Generation Zoom grew up today. Learning stocks can be lost as fast as accumulated. That health 
is wealth, and love is gold, and life will find a way. Mm. It's, it gets me every time. Health is wealth and love is gold and life will find a way. And doesn't it just, we, you know, we don't have any option but to go on and it's never felt more relevant than I suppose in the last couple of years. Maxine, I'm interested when you're sitting down to write, you know, especially a collection like this, which is, you know, it's quite cohesive. It's very of the time. Do, do you think that you set out to write and reflect what's happening or is it more something that you think kind of comes when you're in the editing or collating the poems afterwards? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of, you know, with this poem, for example, I didn't sit down and think I'm going to write a poem about, you know, this generation and what they've seen and how they're going to benefit from that. It kind of came out of that place of just thinking about what, young people are missing at the moment and you know having those kind of nostalgic oh I remember you know what did you used to love about going to school and that kind of social aspect of things um and so I guess I start with some kind of image or some kind of feeling and in this case it was both the nostalgia and hope of a kind of you know what are the things we've lost and what are the things that we might possibly gain out of this moment mm. um and yeah, I think it it the poem often takes me places that I didn't imagine it would. Um, so you know, for example, with this piece, you know, it started out as very general, and then in imagining this home where kind of you know the dads come home and they're all in there together, and and you know, and then thinking about. Um, this generation and I suppose how much better they are at chipping away at prejudices and, um, you know, the, um, you know, I suppose the biases that we all have. And so it kind of went into this really specific, I can imagine this family and they have this queer son, you know, that's kind of struggling with getting his parents on board and how we, how do you do that in this time, uh, which I didn't, you know, when I initially sat down, I kind of had this very broad sweeping view of the poem. So, yeah, I find that I start out with a, an image about the times and that image just kind of, you know, almost takes me on a journey mm. as opposed to me plotting out what I'm going to write in the beginning. Something I love about your work is the way in which you incorporate young people. I know that you have uh, taught in schools a lot and taught young people a lot. I know that um, one of your books, I believe, is on the school curriculum. I think it's Foreign Soil. I am interested, I suppose, in, you know, and you've also um, written uh, amazing picture books and illustrated them, which I'd love to talk a little bit about later. Um, but I suppose I'm, I'm interested in when you are writing poems like this, who you imagine your audience to be. I didn't, I didn't really used to imagine an audience, you know. I think in the early days of my writing, you know, particularly when I was writing Foreign Soil, which is my short fiction collection, I don't think I ever really believed it would get published. <laughs> which is strange to ruminate on now given I've published so much, but it really was that writing cave of just I've fallen in love with these characters, I want to spend more time on them and I want to make these words as beautiful as possible in telling the story. And then I was surprised that that collection was booklisted for the VCE in Victoria. Mm -hmm. um, this is the fourth year that it's been on the VCE and next year uh, The Hate Race, my memoir, will go on the VCE. Um, and, yeah, so 
the experience of going in and out of classrooms, talking to 16 to 18-year-olds about what their experience of this book is and realising that it's actually when you're putting literature into the hands of young people, it's like a two-way conversation. Mm. You know, all of a sudden, um, you know, teenagers are saying to me, well, well, what does this character mean and what, and what do they think and what's their backstory and, and you know, does, is this a comment on feminism or is this a comment on colonisation and and because the collection is about broader themes, just all of a sudden you're having conversations that aren't about the book. Mm. And I suppose that's made me think a little bit more about the work that young people, and by young people I kind of mean people under 35, um, are looking for and will connect with. And so I think there, there are pieces in this book where I have thought um, about those people as an ideal audience as opposed to just kind of writing it and whoever picks it up picks it up mm. um, and so yeah that's been a new experience to me it's kind of it almost becomes a two-way conversation between reader and writer I love that I think that's such a great way to engage young people I suppose just while we're talking about that I know um, your a lot of your work recently you've written um, books for young people picture books you've also illustrated them which I was very surprised I saw that um, in an amazing way I was like what she can draw as well it's too much um, I saw that amazing segment that you did on um, the wonderful Namilla Benson's artworks show and you um, drew her I, I am so interested when you kind of have all of these forms at your fingertips, how you kind of figure out what what's the best form to kind of carry the message that, that you want to portray. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And I think I wrestle with things. You know, there are a couple of poems I've written recently for children that I think this would be great in a book of poems for children but I also could use it as a picture book and how, you know, how do you make that decision? Um, and I think, yeah, the, the form, you know, for example, my, my latest picture book, When We Say Black Lives Matter, started out as a poem. Mm. Um, and it's interesting because as a poem, the ideal audience for it for me is uh, perhaps age between 8 and 13, uh, but as a picture book, all of a sudden that age range gets gets lowered mm-hmm. because it's simply because it's in that picture book form. Um, and so, yeah, often I think the constraints that we put on form and who they're for will dictate, you know, who that book, book gets put in front of. Um, and if I was to take that when we say Black Lives Matter poem and put it in a book of poems for kids, that would probably end up in upper primary school or lower high school. Um, and so sometimes it's... Um, you know, sometimes it's out of your hands. Sometimes you give a text to a publisher and they say, actually, I think this would work better as a picture book or as a poem or, or something. Mm. Um, but for me, yeah, it's it's just about what the best form for that work is. You know, when I took that poem and made it into a picture book, it was because I thought there are all of these layers or things that are alluded to in a poem that could be heightened or added to with images and that's why it became a picture book rather than thinking I want to get this into the hands of, of smaller children. It was mm-hmm. kind of I could see that there was something else that could speak to the words, whereas there are some pieces, Generation Zoom, for example, where I feel like it wouldn't particularly be enhanced by images. It's so inherently visual in what it conjures. Mm. I love that idea of, I suppose, using poetry as a, as a tool to get 
younger people into literacy and, and using illustrations as well. And I suppose using all of the tools in the toolkit to make uh, text and ideas as accessible as possible to young people, but also perhaps other people if they you know have lower literacy levels. I think it's a really great way to, to be more inclusive. And it seems like that's something that's really important in your work. Yeah, definitely. And one of the great joys of having created picture books is, you know, I've been able to see over the years that a lot of them have been used by organisations like the Indigenous Literacy Foundation to teach adults um, to read. And, you know, that idea of making a picture book that a four-year-old can read, but if I read it as an adult, I'm still getting perhaps more out of it than the child that I'm reading it to. You know, it may be that there are little kind of Easter eggs hidden in the (laughs) images that kids won't understand, um, but adults know because we know more about the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I love that idea. And even as a parent, I would love those picture books where there's something in it for the adults, you know, whether it's the style of the art or whether it's, you know, that there's a whole other subtext going on that the kids don't understand um, and, and I love picture books, mm. you know, even as an adult, you know, I kind of go and, and it's great being an author illustrator and I pretend I'm buying them for research. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I have to buy these 10 picture books because they're research. Um, but yeah, just that, that idea that you stop reading them because you're an adult. Um, it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I know I want to go out and buy some more picture books. Um, <laughs> You know, whilst we are talking about young people, you do have a very incredible poem um, that speaks about the power of the next generation um, called Fridays. Would you be up for reading that one? So on page 30. Fridays. On Fridays, our children are bursting train carriages backpacked full of hope, wielding placards, bedroom made from flattened cornflake boxes, and upcycled tomato steaks. On Fridays, our children raise melodic voices meant for playing tag or jump rope and take to the streets in every city, millions strong and begging us to know. In the empty classrooms, silence echoes round initial etched desks and lockers left open spill crumpled science notes. On Fridays, Our kids are forced to become adults. On the ball court, a lone grey hoodie hangs abandoned from the hoop. Every week, our children sacrifice one-fifth of their dreams, and on Fridays, they become exactly who we need, marching with their arms around each other's tiny shoulders and their iPhones held up viral high. They are brave enough to defy instruction, sure enough to face the future, and smart enough to know their minds, if they save the world or not. On Fridays, our children tried. Another really powerful poem. You know, I think something about this poem that just really, I suppose, stuck with me is just how much hope I have for our next generation and just the fact that, you know, they're out there marching in the streets and they're taking time off school to think about the climate. I am interested, I suppose, when you're writing this collection that there has been some really kind of horrific and disastrous times in the last couple of years. 
how you kind of balance this, um, I suppose, that challenge of holding on to hope whilst also creating, you know, an accurate depiction of kind of what's going on? Yeah, I think that's part of the challenge of the poet is how do I create or of writing about these topics is how do I take this thing which is really quite devastating and which is impacting us all and is really impacting humanity um, and is a threat to humanity and make it somehow beautiful. Um, And sometimes you can't. Sometimes that beauty has to come from the words and the way that you string string them together and the way that that makes people feel. But, you know, I guess I tried to find those moments of, um, you know, hope or joy or um, solidarity that have come out of the last few years because that's what I, you know, those are the things that I've looked for, mm. you know, in this 24-hour news cycle, not being able to leave the house, those moments and those images of just, you know, in this example, streets of, of kids, you know, going out and protesting and actually, you know, um, coming together to um yeah, to, to to speak to the world, I suppose, and express their dissatisfaction. You know, um, when I was that age, I was listening to Bobby Brown on my boombox, you know. <laughs> and I think for me that's been really powerful, you know, watching my both one of my kids who's old enough mm-hmm. to go off to the, to the protests and just, yeah, thinking of this idea of the abandoned schools and, mm-hmm. you know, empty classrooms and, and just the profoundness of leaving your education, the sacrifice. you know, because the world is burning. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Just that that sacrifice or that payoff when they, that these young people are making so early in their life because they realise and know that this is, as you said, it impacts all of humanity um, is, yeah, it's absolutely profound and it, it does, it fills me with so much joy. Um Maxine, I think across this collection, you know, you tackle some really, um, I suppose, moments of reckoning that we've had in the last few years, you know, the Me Too movement, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests. I'm interested, I suppose, as such an accomplished writer now, you know, being, you know, 10 books into your career, how do you feel, does your, I suppose, your role as a as a poet, as a writer, do you feel more pressure to kind of depict what's going on, these really serious kind of awful events in a way that perhaps you you hadn't before? Is there any kind of pressure with with that as you kind of, as you go on through your career, you know you have an audience? Yeah, I think for me the pressure or the, the impulse to create work which speaks to events that are going on or difficult things that are happening comes not from readers but through... I think being aware of what a privilege it is to have a platform. Mm -hmm. And once upon a time when I wrote a book, I didn't think it would get published. But when you know that, okay, if I gather this collection of poems together, if I'm writing, it probably will end up on a shelf in some way, you know, even if it doesn't set the world on fire in terms of readership, it's probably a bad (laughs) analogy to use (laughs) given the collection. (laughs) Um, Yeah, just, just that, that, acknowledgement of well I can write about these things um and what am I going to use this superpower (laughs) you know that through some miracle and I still feel like in Australia it is a miracle to have been able to get all these works published um 
you know, what am I going to use this for? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's not necessarily, you know, one of my picture books, Fashionista, is really about, you know, the power of self-expression and individuality in children, um, and it's kind of a, a fashion anthem. And so it's not necessarily, you know, with that book it was really about, you know, how do I give kids the tools to express themselves even though they might not have much around them or might not feel they have much autonomy. So it doesn't have to be this kind of, you know, global pandemic or, or you know, kind of the Black Lives Matter movement, these kind of enormous um, issues facing our time. But I guess for me as a writer, in order to sit down and spend that time creating something, I have to believe both that there is a gap, that it hasn't been created before, and that it's going to leave some kind of good in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Otherwise, why do it? I love that so much that it is your superpower because it absolutely is. And as you said before, I think it's um, poems like these, I think, can be a real gateway into having some of these conversations that can be really hard and people don't know perhaps how to have them. Um, And, yeah, your book, it almost feels like it's the perfect book to read aloud with friends or families. So thank you. It is. um, This book is a superpower. So, um, yeah, I absolutely adore it. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Uh, if you have just joined us, we are live in conversation with award-winning poet and author Maxine Beniba-Clark. Uh, you might be watching on our website at rr.org.au. If you want to, you can also do that. It's also on our social media channels or maybe you're listening on the radio on Triple R, wherever you are. It's such a pleasure to have your company Um, Maxine, I'd love to, I suppose, talk about another poem that really stayed with me. I mean, I feel like there's so many of them. I was telling you off air, I'd marked the whole book. Um, But the poem, The Monsters Are Out, um, would you be up for reading that one and then maybe we can have a discussion about it? Yeah, sure. It's on page 59. Okay. The Monsters Are Out. The monsters are out, the monsters are out, and the women of Melbourne, we're leaving early again, sending are you home yet texts, glancing over shivering shoulders, keeping friends on the line until the key's in the lock. Oh, sisters, we forgot. Jill had only just got off a safe call, Eurydice texted to say she was almost home. Masa went out for a walk and, well, Aya, she caught the Bandura tram home. So here we are, holding vigil again. Two dollar a packet coals, tea light candles, flame flickering, rage high, shoulder to shoulder, bleeding against the sobbing summer light. But some of the monsters have the same face as our sleeping four-year-olds. The monsters gave us valentines. Some of the monsters have the other key card to our shared bank account. The monsters are out. The monsters are out. And oh, how we flame against the sobbing summer light. But when we're done mourning, some of us go home to die. That is such a 
powerful poem. Um, I've been doing some, uh, making something around domestic violence at the moment. And I just, I think it really stuck with me because you write with such nuance and and clarity and incision about these topics that are so scary and and sensitive. And they're really hard truths that I think um, as a country, we really struggle to reconcile with that, you know, this trope of the fact that perpetrators are are monsters, that they're not people we know um, is, you know, is often so untrue that, um, you know, the the perpetrators are the ones that gave us Valentines. They're the ones in our homes. Um, It just resonated so strongly. I'm interested, I suppose, the weight of kind of shifting people's perception of DV, of domestic violence, feels really hard and heavy at times. I'm interested, I suppose, you know, this this poem was written recently, like how do we kind of shift that conversation around um, who the perpetrators are so that it becomes a little bit more nuanced and that people start to recognise, um, yeah, recognise this problem for what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult, I think this is one of those pieces where, This was actually the first poem. It was written as the first poem I ever wrote that was published in the Saturday paper. Mm. Um, And, you know, it doesn't really offer any kind of solutions. You know, it doesn't even really offer any kind of hope. And I think that's the place that I was in at that particular time was I just want to articulate this moment Mm. and this sense of um, both uh, these atrocities against women happening again and again and again. Um, But, you know, us not at that stage, I didn't feel we were having this conversation around, you know, well, these are our brothers and our sons and our nephews and our uncles, you know, they have to be um, because where else are these men coming from? Um, And so it was just a kind of, you know, I want to capture this moment and I want to sit in it and I want people to think about this Um, And one of the last poems that I wrote um, for the collection Something Sure Mm -hmm. was written after Hannah Clark um, died at the hands of her partner. And it does offer, you know, it kind of takes it one step further to say, you know, it's written in the voice of a mother saying to her son, you know, if you're a good man, you'll lead a bad man home. You know, this sense of this is actually not the problem of those women holding candles in that first poem that I've just read, The Monsters Are Out. It's not necessarily their job. You know, men need to be pulling each other up and speaking to their brothers and speaking to their friends. And, you know, when you hear someone in the lunchroom at work saying something about their partner, that's that's the point at which you intervene. And I think there are developments like that in my work and in my thinking where it's kind of I'm not ready to necessarily make a judgment on this I just want to Mm -hmm. capture this moment um, and let this be almost like a recording of history this is what happened and this is what we saw and this is where we were um, that sometimes I'll later come back to um, and it's kind of you know I've gotten to a place of okay I'm ready to actually (laughs) offer up some kind of potential solution or discussion point. Mm. I think that's so powerful, though, just sitting in that discomfort, because I think that's really hard to do, you know, to sit and reflect on the fact that, you know, for perpetrators, they're often people we know, like more likely than not that we're people that we know. Um, And yeah, as you said, maybe not 
making any solution, but just sitting in that very hard truth, I think is very powerful in itself. And I think that's kind of why it's, it's stuck with me. Like these are things that I know, but just the way that you've articulated that just really, it really packs a punch. I, I would love to talk about the poem that you just brought up. I believe that's the, the line of the title of the book is in that poem as well. Yeah. Yeah. That poem, something sure. Something um, sure. Yeah. Because I feel like that poem, yeah, as you said, it is very much about, um, looking at how we educate, uh, I suppose, our next generation of people, but not only, you know, people now and how we pull each other up and we call each other in. Um, I suppose, can you talk to that idea a little bit and, and that poem and I suppose more broadly, you know, this idea of decency that kind of, you know, it, it, this is what this book is, how decent folk behave. Can, can you speak to that idea? Yeah, it's funny when you're looking for a title for a book, it's, I mean, I cycle through so many titles, you know. My manuscripts might be named 50 different things <laughs> depending on when I was working on that, that manuscript. Um, and, you know, I thought after this collection was put together, I'm going to read through it and, and find a line or a word or something that kind of encapsulates it. And when I read that poem, there's a line where the, the mother says, I know you're young and I taught you well how decent folk behave, mm. but you know, if the time comes, um, you know, you need to step forward and you need to, you know, kind of pull up your your brothers or your friends or, um, and that seemed like a, you know, a good summation of the complexity of humanity, you know, that, you know, humanity is incredible. You go from, from you know, places like Generation Zoom where it's like we've managed to go from, you know, if you believe in evolution from mm. apes to having a Zoom conversation, you know, this extraordinary power of humanity to evolve the world. Um, but yet we're, we're horrible to each other. Mm. You know, we behave in these kind of really animalistic, cruel, you know, unthinkable ways. And that seemed like a kind of how decent folk behave. We have this consciousness. We have the power to not do these things. So what is the conversation we have about, you know, the kind of people that we want to be? Mm. And so for me that, yeah, that seemed like a good summary of the the poems in the book. Mm, absolutely. Um, another poem that I would love to, I suppose, talk about, I just the time is racing by, um, is the is the surveillance poem, which I believe is on page 99. Um, maybe would you like to read this one and then we can speak to it? Yeah, sure. Surveillance. The blood truth is it's much, much less about the camera and much more to do with the body that it's worn on, the body with the baton hanging from its belt, the body blue, the body on the cop beat, clenching fists around the point-blank pepper spray can, the body who holds the rein that rears the riot horse, the body trained to wield the gun. It is conviction clear now, what most of us knew two years ago, when the Surveillance's Devices Act was amended. Back then, Victoria Police said body cams would be the third eye, that there was nothing to worry about, and importantly, this would ensure that officers do the right thing. But we all knew, we knew that it was not the people who needed watching, that those cameras only shoot from the same angle as the coppers do, no matter who does what, no matter what goes down, that device 
can only, only ever be pointed at you. Victoria Police, they brought in body cams and they now admit they have the power to edit or delete. Trust them, they will only do it sparingly. Meanwhile, bystanders' smartphones capture disproportionate force midway through an episode, headlocked hard against the asphalt, concerned for his own welfare, and he'd called for help himself. Meanwhile, neighbours say, nah, it never went down like that. Their guns were cocked before anyone even answered the door. Had he really skipped parole? Or was it just supposed to be a routine checkup call? Where were body cams then? We have heard it all before. The blood truth is, it's much less about the gun and much more to do with the body that it's trained on. The body with the placard raised in its fist, the body brown, the body colonised, the body of a struggling mind, the body easy to get away with beating, clenched eyelids against a point-blank pepper spray can, the body underneath the rearing riot horse, the body well-trained to fear the blue. Very powerful poem, uh, Surveillance, there by Maxine Beniba Clark. If you just tuned in, you know, this, this poem is really about increased powers of police here in Victoria. It's very impactful. I thought, um, I just, I suppose, love to talk a little bit about the ways in which you construct poems like this. You know, for me, that repetition of the body and of the gun almost made me feel about, feel like the ways in which when you are in the proximity of a armed officer, you are so aware of where that gun is and it kind of the gun, the gun, it kind of your, your attention keeps coming back. And I can only imagine that is tenfold when you are from a community that is over-policed. I'm interested, I suppose, when you're writing a poem like this, when you're thinking about ways in which to make it feel impactful and to make it feel true to what it is, how much are you thinking about those tools like repetition or is that something that kind of comes through in your edits? Yeah, I think I definitely do think about how do I want my reader to feel or perhaps more immediately, how do I feel when I think Mm. about this topic? And, you know, you're right when you think about that hyper-awareness of being in close proximity of someone with a gun, someone with a baton, someone with pepper spray. Um, And, yeah, how do I replicate that for for someone, you know, how do I validate that for someone who feels like that and replicate it for someone who's never actually had that feeling? Um, and I think this poem, you know, there are a few poems in the book like this and The Monsters Are Out that are so specific to Melbourne or Victoria, mm. you know, but it also speaks to, you know, protests the world or police over-policing the world over, uh, police brutality the world over. And so, yeah, I guess I do a lot of thinking in those poems about how to make the, how to make the specific universal. You know, how am I going to write this poem so that someone who's never been to Melbourne doesn't know the names of this women, these women or the circumstances under which they were killed or, you know, doesn't know about... Um, you know, with surveillance, I actually detail the history of this piece of legislation that has given police uh, extreme powers. Um, and, like, how do you do that without being 
uh, too explainy or too didactic. Mm. didactic. Um, so, yeah, I do think a lot, I suppose, about um, the feeling I want people to have, how to achieve that, whether it's going to be through repetition, through rhythm, through the gaps in the story that I'm telling um, because yeah, that's, that's, to me, that's what poetry is about. How do I use these words to evoke a particular emotional feeling? Mm. Yeah. And there's something also that's just so added from you reading out the poem, because you are an extraordinary performer, the ways in which you perform the words that you've written, it adds another dimension, but also when I'm reading and I can almost, I feel like, cause I've seen you perform quite a few times, I can almost hear perhaps how I think you might say it. And there's something that's so joyous to me in just the way that it sounds, the kind of musicality of the way that you speak. And I suppose it kind of brings me back to what we were even talking about at the start about perhaps coming into poetry from, I I believe you were a slam poet to kind of start with. And I'm interested if, you know, you think that that still, I suppose, really shines in, in your work or how you think about that now. Yeah, I mean, I started out only performing spoken word. There was a good five, six, maybe even seven years where um, I was not, I think at that time, not even writing work down. So to compose a poem, I'd kind of go for a walk and I'd come up with one line and I'd memorise that line and I'd add another line. You know, it was almost like I imagine, you know, you construct a rap or something like that. Um, when I was growing up, you know, even though my parents were, you know, my mum was an actress, my dad's a mathematician, so they're kind of highly literate people. We didn't have poetry books in the house. You know, I had kind of the odd novel or play or things like that. Um, So I was reading lyric sheets, you know, those glorious things you used to get with CDs and cassettes, (laughs) which now, of course, you know, you just Google the lyrics of something. Um, And so, you know, I would sit in my room and kind of learn these lyrics and look at the way that people told the story and, you know, I was reading things like Bob Dylan's Hurricane, um, this, you know, the story of Reuben Carter or um, Tracy Chapman's Fast Car, you know, that sense of kind of actually telling a story within the, the lyric, but I was looking at it on the page as poetry. And I think that's probably where that comes from is, you know, my um, coming to poetry came through lyrics you know, my dad was a record nut and so I'd kind of read the backs of all his records and, and you know, think about how these stories were constructed. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's still the way that I write poetry is thinking of it as having a rhythm and having something to propel it forward and trying to, whether it's through the line breaks or the indentations on the page, trying to give some kind of indication of where the pauses should be and, and how it should be read. Mm. I think that's something that I really love specifically about your poetry is that, yeah, it does have that kind of musicality to it. But, you know, you're saying all of these really astute, insightful things and you're saying it with such clarity and kind of punch that is something that I, I think not a lot of people think of as poetry when people think of poetry, if you know what I mean. People might have gone to school and they have a very particular idea of what they think poetry is. But, of course, uh, you know, contemporary poetry or even looking at, as you said, music, uh, songwriters, they're poets in their own right. I suppose just before I let you go, I I think, um, you know, I I always try to read poetry to my partner and he loves your poetry because I feel like it's something that he can kind of grab onto. But some poetry is a little bit, you know, it's a little bit obtuse. It's a little bit hard to kind of grab onto. I'm interested, I suppose, how 
as a poet, you know, you've kind of seen the poetry landscape change over your time. How, how can we get more people into poetry or like recognising um, what it is and, and how people can kind of consume it and engage with it? Yeah, I think it's that awareness of, you know, that just because poetry is more accessible, it doesn't mean that it's it's not as well constructed, you know, or it doesn't mean that it's not that kind of high art it's really, really difficult to make poetry accessible, mm. you know. Um, you know, particularly if you have these really con- con- uh, complex concepts that you're trying to get across. Mm. And it's like, how do I do that within the poetic form and not kind of um, make it inaccessible? So I think giving work to young people, which is complex, but which also... Um, you know, speak to them where they're at. You know, you have to meet people where they are, whether it's where their interests are, where their capabilities and capacities for for reading are. Um, And, yeah, when I think of, you know, like um, Kendrick Lamar winning a Pulitzer or Bob Dylan, you know, winning the Nobel Laureate for for literature, which, of course, was such a contentious awarding, um, just that awareness of, you know, that, Poetry comes in all different forms and in order to bring people into the poetry world, it needs to be delivered in all of those different forms or, you know, available in all of those different forms. Mm. Um, And, yeah, I've seen the contemporary poetry landscape definitely change for the better over the last 10 years. Um, Some of my favourite Australian poets, Omar Musa, Ellen Van Nieven, Omar Saka, Alison Whitaker, um, Andy Jackson, just... Yeah, just beautiful, um, beautiful writers who are kind of pushing the contemporary form of poetry into different areas um, and and have a really strong voice themselves, but in a way that is also accessible. Um, Yeah, I think it's been really wonderful when I when I started writing poetry about 20 years ago in Australia I don't think I ever thought that I would be published by a mainstream publisher. You know, it seemed like this ridiculous pipe dream. Um, and I think, you know, yeah, we're, we're all the better for it. Mm-hmm. You know, all poets and all poetry readers are the better for it when poetry diversifies. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And I, yeah, amazing list of poets just there as well. If anybody's looking for other books after they've read yours. Um, Maxine, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's just always such a privilege to talk to you and congratulations on an amazing collection. Thank you so much. And what beautiful questions as well. It's been such a great chat. (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, of course, the wonderful Maxine Veniva Clark there, live in conversation here on The Glass House. Maxine's book, How Decent Folk Behave, is out now through Hachette. I want to say a big thank you to everyone who's been listening or if you've been watching uh, via FM Digital, Triple R's website or maybe on social media. Uh, especially a huge thank you to all of our Triple R subscribers uh, whose support is so essential to keep us doing what we do. We really couldn't. I wouldn't be here without you. Um, I also want to say a massive thank you to all the amazing team here at Triple R who um, allow us to do great things like this. Um, So a big thank you. If you haven't missed the conversation, you can listen or watch back. You can head over to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Keep it locked to Triple R. 
This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website.